All right, Jesse, I cannot believe that last week's villains almost got away with it. What's the story this time around? When one half of a May-December marriage ends up dead in an SUV in a freezing creek, authorities investigate whether the death was simply a car accident or something far more nefarious. Along the way, they discover secrets, infidelity, and obsessive controlling love. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about pen pal friends, bitter ends, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod, where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Speaking of Patreon, we're excited, as we always are, to introduce a new set of incredible patrons. So super big thanks to the following people. Sarah W. and Genevieve C. Kristen A. and Jenna B. And JC S. and Andrea L. Welcome, guys. Thank you so much for being patrons. And thank you to everyone who's tuning in. Welcome to Love Murder. If I sound a little husky yet again, blame my daughter's preschool because I cannot stay well. (laughs) I'm sure there's a million other parents out there who are experiencing the same thing you are. So it's like you go, your kid goes back to school in September and you brace yourself. It's like Game of Thrones. You're like sickness is coming. (laughs) And then it just comes and comes and comes again until I I mean, hopefully March. (laughs) I know I was going to say, but also does that happen like every year as they get older too? I don't know. I just have to assume that collectively our family's immune system is going to get better. I think so too. And I feel like this is the worst year because of all of the kids being inside for two years and not getting sick and wearing masks and now everything's out. So I think this is like the worst it's going to be probably. Yeah. All the bugs are having a heyday. They're like, finally, I'm coming out. Like they're having a party right now. All of like the cold and flu (laughs) viruses that have been (laughs) stuck, (laughs) not infecting for two years are ready. They're in bikinis on like a booze Yeah, they're on spring break. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, okay so yeah so if i'm i'm a little husky guys that is why but i will not let it deter me you're just gonna have to deal with a little rasp and we're gonna get through this together i love a rasp (laughs) well you're in for it today and it's fitting that i have a cold because we are talking about a crime that was discovered during a very very cold time of the year so let's jump right in It was a brutally cold January morning in 2004 in Hopewell Township, New Jersey. Electric company maintenance workers Richard Archer and Chucky Black were chilled to the bone after working all night on a downed electric pole in the negative 10 degree weather. No. Oh, no. That's a big N.O. Cold just thinking about it. 
The men returned to their work truck, eager to shake the chill and get some breakfast. As they drove down Jacobs Creek Road in dawn's first light, Richard spotted a dark green Toyota Land Cruiser, and it appeared to be parked almost haphazardly in the creek. But he was a hunter himself, and he thought, well, maybe they just wanted a really good vantage point for hunting deer. Okay. Because it looked like the car was still on. So he's like, strange, but must be another fellow hunter. However, they went to a diner, they warmed up over some eggs and coffee, and then they had to go back out and finish their task. And this was about an hour later, and the Land Cruiser was still parked in the same position. And it was eerie. There was no headlights on. There was just kind of this like ghostly smoke and exhaust and steam from the engine coming up from the car. So at that point, he began to get worried that someone might be injured, that it might have been a car accident. Somebody not purposely went down that bank. So at that point, he asked Chucky if he could pull over and Richard clambered down the hill and he started to investigate. As he approached the SUV, he found that it was resting in about six inches of frozen slushy water. And as he got a little bit closer, the hairs on the back of his neck began to rise. There was what appeared to be fresh blood frozen solid in ice on the car door. Oh, my God. And when his eyes looked at the rest of the vehicle, it appeared that there was more blood on the exterior of the vehicle as well. So Richard climbed onto the baseboard of the SUV so he wasn't standing in the slushy creek river. And he peered inside the driver's window. And what he saw chilled him much more than the frosty temperature ever could. He would later say it was like something out of a horror movie or a concentration camp. There was a dead person slumped over the steering wheel, eyes open, and a tremendous amount of blood. Huh. Richard and Chucky called the police, who arrived on the scene in the still early morning and immediately realized that something was quite awry. If this was a single driver car accident and the deceased driver was still in the car, then why were there blood spears on the exterior of the car? Yeah. And furthermore, how were there footsteps in the snow leading away from the SUV? Either someone had survived the accident or this was no accident at all. Throughout the investigation, the police would uncover insidious secrets and infidelities, a deep obsession and controlling behavior that lurked behind the facade of a so-called happy marriage that eventually resulted in a terrible murder. So it's a chilly one today on Love Murder. Get your fuzziest socks on, pour a cup of tea or coffee, maybe a little hot toddy, and let's get into it. You need a hot toddy tonight. I could use a hot toddy so bad. <laughs> I'm just going to have like one hot toddy and go to bed at 7 o'clock when my kids go to bed tonight. Yep. Yep. <laughs> okay, so we're going to start off by talking about the unlikely couple at the heart of this week's episode. Jonathan Nice was born in 1950 as the first of four sons born to Emma and Jonathan Nice Jr. in rural Pennsylvania. Whoa. Jonathan was the third namesake in his family, too. So it's kind of confusing because his father is Jonathan Jr., yeah, which I, we usually think is younger, <laughs> but he's number three. So Jonathan knew at a very young age that he wanted to work in medicine. He was a curious and bright child who was constantly doing all sorts of different types of science experiments, even at home. He grew into a pretty good looking 
blonde guy who was super duper tall. He reached his full adult height of 6'4 while he was still in high school. Whoa. Yeah, so naturally, he played for the basketball team. But despite his relatively good looks and his tall stature, as well as his intellect and participation in sports and other school organizations, he was not really a popular guy. His classmates remember him as quiet, reserved, and a bit awkward, especially when it came to girls. Okay. In 1968, Jonathan graduated high school and began college at Philadelphia's Temple University. His parents did not have a lot of money, so Jonathan put himself through school by working three different jobs. As a result, it took him twice as long to obtain his bachelor's degree in science. That did not deter Jonathan in the least, however. He went on to achieve a master's degree in molecular biology and then a PhD in biology at Temple School of Medicine. Wow, that's impressive. He is definitely a hard worker for sure. Along the way, he met and married his first wife, Sylvia. Sylvia came from a well-educated and well-off Jewish family, while Jonathan was the first person in his family to attend college and was raised Catholic. So there were a lot of cultural differences. Yep. Those differences eventually proved insurmountable, and the couple divorced after seven years of marriage. Okay. They were pretty young when they got married, too. After the divorce, 30-year-old Jonathan moved to the West Coast, where he did post-grad work at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, Andy's hometown. Not really hometown. No. Chosen town. That's yeah. our emergency room. Is that? Mm-hmm. That's where I took Echo that one time. Yeah, that's, it's amazing. Children's Hospital is amazing. And then he went on to join a cancer research center that was also located in L.A., But eventually, he missed his parents. He didn't want to be on the West Coast full-time, so he ended up taking an appointment as an assistant professor at East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, which, well, it was not in Pennsylvania. It was closer, and it was on the East Coast. While he was there, he eventually joined the allergy and asthma section where he flourished. He had apparently experienced pretty severe asthma himself as a child, so this was something that was very close to him. And it's also a pretty well-funded area of research because it affects so many people. And it's one of the most common ailments that can have the most, I guess, extreme results. I mean, you can have mild asthma to the point where there's asthma attacks killing people daily. Yep. Well, his professional star rose, his personal life just could not seem to get off the ground. His colleagues were mystified to why somebody so smart and... I didn't find him very good looking. He was described as good looking, but I think it's one of those tricks where when a guy is tall, people think he's good looking. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, he was described as smart, tall, good looking. So nobody knew why he was still single at this age, especially when he was pushing 40 at this point. Yeah, but if he had already gotten married and divorced, I feel like that's also a reason sometimes for people. Like sometimes people just don't want to get married again. Yeah, especially if it was traumatic, the ending. So at the age of 39, Jonathan did decide it was time to find a wife and have some children because he'd always wanted to have a family. He became interested in a woman who was from the Philippines. He met this woman in the hospital cafeteria while he was working, and she just blew him away. She was smart. She was pretty. And he became friendly with her. I think she worked in the cafeteria. Okay. And after a few conversations, she told him, she thought they were just being friendly. And when he finally asked her out, she was like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm actually engaged. And he was like, oh, bummer. And she's like, however, you should check out this Manila newspaper. It has a lonely heart section, which features a lot of attractive young Filipina women who are seeking out 
American male pen pals for friendship, romance, beyond. Kind of like what some people would derogatorily say is kind of a mail order bride situation. That's exactly (laughs) what I was thinking. Yeah. And we're not going to get into (laughs) how exploitative a lot of these services are. Yep. This one, as it was talked about in my primary source today, Never Leave Me by John Glatt, was more an agency set up the women to put these advertisements out to particularly attract American men. Okay. So that's what we're talking about. Was the agency making money, though, or was it like actually for the betterment of the women? It did not sound like he had to pay for anything. It didn't sound like he had to pay to speak to her at all. So maybe it just was like kind of a Lonely Hearts newspaper type thing. Okay, cool. Yep. And then I also watched an episode of On the Case with Paula Zahn, season one, episode seven, Love You to Death. And we're going to talk about that later as well. So he ended up going through this newspaper and he found a woman that particularly stood out to him. Now, he's 39 years old, and the woman that stood out to him was 19-year-old no. Michelle Rivera. And now, I do not know. She ends up Americanizing her name to Michelle. So I tried to look up the... Correct pronunciation, yeah. Yeah, pronunciation of this, and I did not find it. So apologies for butchering her natural name. But we're going to call her what she chose to be called later in life when she Americanized her name, Michelle. Yeah, the age difference is a lot. And I know we have listeners who have age differences in their relationship, but hopefully you guys didn't meet when you were 19 and 39 because it's just such a developmental difference at that point. Yeah, 20 years is not as much when you're like past 30, I feel like. Yeah, even 25 and 45. It's still a lot, but you probably have at that point launched a career and you're working. Depends on the person so much too. I mean, there's so many different types of 25-year-olds. Absolutely, for sure. But most 19-year-olds are the same. (laughs) Yeah, 19, you're still figuring yourself out. And I feel like Michelle did not get a lot of chance to figure herself out at that point either. So, of course, she's gorgeous. She's very bright. He was completely besotted with her. So he actually didn't immediately write her a letter because he had a lot of insecurity and doubt whether she'd be interested in somebody like him. So it took him a couple days to summon up the courage to write her a letter. But when he got a response from her, he was delighted. So here's the thing. Michelle also seemed very interested in Jonathan. And this is because he really painted himself as a wealthy, smart man who was involved in academics and medical research, who had multiple degrees. He also shaved nearly a decade off his age and sent her a photo of himself from when he was in his mid-20s. No. No. So they were intending on never meeting in real life? But that's this is why I do not understand why people do this. I do not understand why people catfish if they're genuinely looking for a connection. Yeah. I don't understand why people send photos of themselves from a decade earlier or more. Yeah. Because if you're looking to meet somebody for the rest of your life, they're going to find out eventually how old you are, what you really look like, who you really are. Yeah, I don't really understand it either. It blows my mind because... Then it's just like, so are you just looking for some sort of attention or attraction and not 
forever because establishing a relationship for the first time on a lie is not a step in the right direction. Huge red flag. And I do think that it's a lot about insecurity. Mm -hmm. But you having an insecurity doesn't give you the right to deceive other people. Yeah. And that's like a you problem, not a couple problem that you need to get sorted out before you get into a couple. Oh, I agree with you completely. Absolutely. And then that sucks too because you should, like everyone deserves somebody who loves them completely and totally and truly for who they are. And you're also denying yourself the opportunity of finding a partner who would love you for your real age, for your real face and body and personality. Yeah, it blows my mind. So yeah, lying, like you said, Andy, is not the way to start a relationship. Obviously, Jonathan was not going to let anything like the truth or old father time get in the way of him wooing Michelle. And so he went full steam ahead with plans to make this young woman his wife. So let's talk about our poor near child bride over here. Michelle was born on November 18th, 1969, while her future husband already had a year of college under his belt. She was the fourth of seven children born to Teodoro and Trefisa Riviera. Michelle grew up in a tiny fishing village about a three-hour ferry from Manila. The family struggled to make ends meet, but they did their very best to provide their children with all that they could. Michelle was both beautiful and smart. In high school, she was an honor student who was always ranked at the top of her class. At only 16, Michelle was accepted and began classes at the National College of Business Administration, but was forced to drop out after one semester when she could not pay her tuition. No. So she ended up getting a job at a retail store near a U.S. naval base, interacting with customers and improving her English. It was while working there that Michelle was exposed to a more affluent American lifestyle, and she decided that she would someday like to relocate to the United States. In order to make her dream come true, she joined one of Manila's pen pal agencies, which guaranteed their clients that they would find new male friends in the U.S. And again, the book did not really get into the money and how this worked or who was paying it. They did not make it sound like Jonathan paid any money, but I don't know. But they have to make money somehow. Yeah, if Michelle might have paid money to place her ad. Yeah. Or something like that. I'm assuming, I mean, money was exchanged at some point. Yeah. So she joins this pen pal agency and she signed up for the first time when she was only 19 years old. And that was around the time. I think actually she signed up at 18 and then she was 19 when she got her first letter from Jonathan in 1989. Okay. She was thrilled. As I said, he described himself as wealthy, successful, scientific. He was six foot four and his photo made him look young and handsome. She could not imagine a better person to be linked up with right from the get-go. Yeah, so he's saying he's 29. I think he's 39, and he's saying he's 30 at this point. Okay. So he shaved nearly a decade off, so he's saying he's 30. And another point, I think he alters his... I mean, we're going to get into this, but he alters his marriage certificate to say 1958 instead of 1950 to keep the ruse going. In May of 1990, Jonathan surprised Michelle when he told her that he intended to fly to the Philippines and marry her. She was shocked, but happy. She was less happy when he arrived the following month, looking like an entirely different man. In the 15 or so years since the image Jonathan had sent, 
he had changed. We all do. It's called aging. He obviously had lost some hair. His skin was a lot ruddier and different. And he had gained some weight in his midsection. I mean, this is totally normal stuff. You're not going to look like you're 25 when you are 40. No. You're just not. I mean, unless you're J-Lo or Gwen Stefani or somebody else who sold their soul to the devil and the cosmetic gods. Pharrell. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So his appearance was definitely an adjustment for her. And she told one of her friends later that her first thought was to run. But then she really thought about all of their amazing letters that they had exchanged, the conversations that they had had, the man she had truly fallen in love with. And even her dad said, Teodoro said, I think Michelle was really in love with him. She was also very strong-minded. He said that he struggled with Jonathan because, of course, he's worried about this older man with his daughter. But he said Michelle was decided. They already had an understanding through their letters. So she decided to overlook the fact that he looked very different than his picture. And I do not think at this point that she realized that he had just straight up lied to her. I think she thought he picked a flattering and maybe older photo. Meanwhile, Jonathan, of course, felt nothing but joy. He said that she was the most beautiful woman he had ever seen. She was 20 years old at this point. I mean, obviously. (laughs) I mean, she's really gorgeous. The wedding photos are beautiful and sad. Very sad. Yeah. So it was thus that Jonathan and Michelle married on June 11th, 1990, exactly one week after they had met. It's given real big 90 Day Fiance vibes over here. Except it's one week fiance. One week fiance. Yeah. By this time, Jonathan was 41, his bride 20 years old. So I guess they were 21 years apart. And they just met a week ago, most importantly. Yeah, I have their birth dates lining up to like 20 years apart, depending on the time of year. So I think that maybe she was 21 when they got married. But still, like 20, 21, he's 41. This is a big difference. And the most important thing is he's lying about his age. He's lying. They said that on the marriage certificate, <laughs> he used whiteout and then retyped the eight. Wait, over why? Zero oh, is, zero is easy to turn into eight. I guess he wanted like it typed. So he was trying to say that he was 32 or 33, and it wasn't that big difference between her being 20, 21. At least that's what he was trying to pretend. This guy was also not in the best of shape, so this was a pretty obvious lie, at least from my eyes. He doesn't look 32. No. That would be a hard pill to swallow. But I also feel like, I mean... I know technology wasn't where it is now, too, but, like, I wonder what types of men the other women from the agency were meeting. Who knows? You know? So it's like, I don't know. And is it normal for them to come over and marry there? Or, like, do they usually just fly them to the U.S.? Like, my basis of knowledge of this is exclusively 90 Day Fiance. And I feel like it can go either way. You can either get married in your spouse's home country and then apply for a spousal visa Or you can do the K-1, which is what the OG TLC show 90 Day Fiance is based off of, which is you apply for a fiance visa, and then you have 90 days once they hit American soil to get married. Yep. That's more knowledge than I had on it. So thank you, TLC. (laughs) It truly is. The learning channel. (laughs) So they decided to do that there. And there was also some other stuff involved in this, which is, 
Jonathan didn't tell anyone what he was doing. He didn't tell his family that he had been conversing with this woman for, I think, a year at this point. He didn't tell them he was getting married. He didn't tell his colleagues at the university that he was getting married. So maybe him coming out and getting married in the Philippines was his way of claiming her in a way that it was still a weird secret at this point. Yeah. So it did take a while for Michelle's spousal visa to come through. So even though they were married in June of 1990, she didn't actually get to come to the United States until April of 1991. Okay. So she arrived in Greenville, North Carolina, and it was a bit of obviously a culture shock for her. She's very young. She's in a new country. And Jonathan had really not properly prepared his friends, colleagues, family to her arrival. So everyone really liked her, but everyone was very taken aback by how sudden this seemed because he didn't prepare anyone for its reality. And they just seemed very different, pretty mismatched from the beginning because Jonathan was very reserved, academic, socially awkward, and obviously a lot older. Yep. Well, Michelle was barely out of her teens, gregarious, beautiful. She was outgoing, but it was in a very difficult way because she still was very reliant upon Jonathan for everything. Yep. These are all like predictable issues. Yes, predictable issues. And he, he, I think that right from the beginning, he treated Michelle more like a possession than a partner. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think things were going well at the beginning. Maybe it was the honeymoon phase. It was definitely going well enough for Michelle to get pregnant pretty much right away. Son Alex was born in January of 1992. And then in November of the following year, brother Trevor joined the family as well. The last sibling, sister Samantha... Joined the family four and a half years after Trevor in March of 1998. Okay. By then, Jonathan had started a pharmaceutical company called Epigenesis. And the goal of Epigenesis was to develop a new class of drugs and therapeutics to address a variety of diseases. And they especially focused on cancer and asthma. Okay. The company blossomed. They received tens of millions of dollars in funding. They had glowing write-ups in scientific and medical publications. And the company was hailed as the next great thing in pharmacology and attracted attention from overseas companies, specifically a lot of Japanese companies. It got so big that American cities actually competed to have Apigenesis relocate to their area. Princeton, New Jersey eventually won by offering an attractive low-tax package. So the family relocated at that time buying an ultra-swanky 5,600-square-foot McMansion in the exclusive Princeton suburb of Hopewell Township. Whoa. Yeah, it said it had like 21 rooms, this place. That's way too many rooms to clean. <laughs> so crazy. Yeah, no. Is that counting like living room and sitting room and all that shit? That's counting living room, sitting room, den, whatever these people had. Yeah, it's not just bedrooms. <laughs> I can't. The foosball room, the art room, the library. The art room sounds nice. The smoked meat room. <laughs> I'm just making stuff up. I don't know what rich people have. 
I'd like to find the out. Magic the Gathering room. <laughs> that's that's what would that's our rich person thing. That's we'd have a Magic the Gathering room, and then I'd have a, a room just for my books. We just just these true crime room. <laughs> we have a rich person room without being rich because my husband's a musician. Yes. Well, that's part of his work. I know. A music room is necessary. Yeah. You guys. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like so crazy when we were looking for a house. We were like, oh, my God, we need a whole room for gear. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's also your podcasting room, too. Now it is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> do, doing double duty. We'd love to hear from you guys. What's your rich person room? Even if you're not a rich person, what is either what's the random rich person room you have? Or if you became rich, what rich person room would you have? Yeah, it seemed like everything was going great. I mean, he's the CEO of this incredible company doing the research he always wanted to do to help people and make a lot of money. Obviously, they have this fancy house. They have three beautiful children. But behind closed doors, Jonathan's controlling behavior threatened to ruin both his business and his marriage. Yeah, you could see that seeping into different categories of your life. Absolutely. Colleagues describe Jonathan as a great scientist who was, quote, the worst manager in the world. He had no sense of business or how to manage people at all. Even when he hired people under him to do the work, to do the managing, to do sales, whatever he was hiring them for, he refused to relinquish control. He insisted on making absolutely every decision himself, which is not great for people you work with and is not good for time management and not good for companies. Also not teamwork. Like It's not. No. It's being a totalitarian dictator. Yes, yes. At home, he was not much better. When Michelle had first moved to the United States, she was young, her English was not yet very strong, and she was entirely reliant upon Jonathan for everything. Which she probably loved. Which he absolutely loved. As the years passed, she grew in confidence and strength. She made friends. She made connections in the United States. And he started definitely clinging to her yeah. more and more as the dynamic changed. Friends described Jonathan as following Michelle around at parties, keeping tabs on who she was talking to. Even if he wasn't physically following her, his eyes were always following her. Friends describe him like they would go to the restroom together or something. They'd come out from the restroom at a, a restaurant or a club or a party, and he'd be standing there waiting for them to come out. Okay. Whoa. I mean, obviously, that's that same insecurity that made him lie about his age. Yeah. And she, as they age, she's still really young, and she's going to look young for a long time. Yep. And he is getting older and older, and that age difference is becoming more apparent. Yep. And... She was very lovely. And the one thing that she did enjoy was working out. At one point, she even wanted to become a personal trainer. And she liked going to the gym. And she used to actually, like, bring her kids with her, like, in the car seat and, like, plop them down while she worked out when they were young. And then major props. Major props. I could not do that. I'd be way too stressed out. And then eventually... They got older, they're in school, and she would go and work out by herself during the day. And he got so jealous that he installed a state-of-the-art gym in their home, in their basement. So she didn't have to leave. He was like, oh, it's for you. It's so you can work out any time. You don't have to go to the gym. But it was really because he didn't want young men who were, like, built and buff yeah. of her own age interacting with her. 
So she made a lot of friends. She made friends with her kids' friends' parents. And she would invite them over to work out with her because she was lonely and she didn't like working out by herself. And she no, wanted to no one does. do things during the day. Yeah, people are social creatures, especially somebody who sounds as extroverted as Michelle yeah. was. She needed human contact. So one of the friends that she made was a woman named Roz Clancy who ran a modeling agency. She also speaks on the Paula Zahn show. And she said that she absolutely adored bubbly, witty, and undeniably good-looking Michelle. And so she, Roz, got her cast in a TV commercial, which Michelle was really excited about. But then Roz got a call that Michelle couldn't do it because Jonathan wouldn't let her. Wait, that's so messed up. Are you serious? I know. Yeah, what would that hurt? Like, what is he afraid? She's going to launch a huge career from a local New Jersey television commercial? Whoa. Issues. Yeah, super issues. Michelle instead channeled her energy into raising her children and designing the perfect home, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on remodeling, furniture, landscaping, and even a fancy water fountain that was placed in the middle of their circular driveway, which I hope to attain someday. The circular driveway are so sick. They're dope. They're so dope. In the fall of 2001, Michelle hired a nursery to plant $50,000 worth of trees around the property. A crew of five gardeners arrived at the house to plant the saplings, led by a 31-year-old Puerto Rican man named Miguel de Jesus, who is best known by his nickname, Enyo. So we're going to call him Enyo. After they finished the job, Enyo knocked on the door to give Michelle the bill, and when she answered, a shiver of attraction ran through both of them. Nothing happened at this point. Nothing happened for months. But let's just call this some foreshadowing because Enyo is going to be some bad news for the nices not so nice after all marriage. So around the same time that Michelle first meets Enyo, September 11th, 2001 happens. And obviously it was devastating to the United States. It was devastating to the economy worldwide. And there was a, a lot going on internationally. And most of their investment was coming from international markets. And at that point, there was an $800 million deal that ended up falling through. Wow. So one by one, a lot of these deals, this promised investment is not coming to fruition. And by the spring of 2002, Jonathan was forced to do extensive layoffs, cutting his staff down to only 12 people. And apparently, when people started looking into the finances of this company, it was a total mess. It looked like, based on what a business publication wrote, that they had already burned through $40 million of venture capital with little results. So especially with the asthma drugs, they were doing nothing that they had promised. And then they weren't doing the work or like or they were doing the work and not having results. They were doing some of the tests and they were doing the research and clinical trials, but it was not coming to fruition the way he promised. It doesn't say whether he was like outright lying or whether he was being overly positive about the possibilities of the drug. But whatever was being promised was not happening. And who's doing the financials? I mean, he's got his hands in everything, which was the problem. He wouldn't give anything up. So he's the CEO of the ship. And at the end of the day, whether he's 
involved on the budget or not, it's just not working out. And he's the top dog. So he's the one who's got to pay. And it was clear that he had bad leadership. Everyone interviewed said he had terrible leadership. And the part of his big portion was the science. He was supposed to be good at the science and the science isn't there either. So it's like if you're losing money and the drugs are not being developed the way they're supposed to be being developed, then what are you giving to this company? Yeah, what are we doing here? And there's tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars at stake. So we're not sure at this point if Michelle knew that the company was in trouble, that Jonathan's position was in trouble because he had lied to her from the very beginning. And later on, people close to the situation, particularly like his parents, his family members say, oh, well, she was spending all this money. He couldn't say no to her. Their money issues came from the fact that she overspent. But she didn't know if he was telling her, baby, we're multimillionaires. I'm the CEO of this business that's getting written up in all these publications. Spend what you want, honey bun. Then how was she to know not to overspend? Yeah, she would have no idea. No one would have any idea. No one would have any idea. So I think it's a really egregious to paint her in any sort of light, which is, I mean, we're not, but there were some things I read where people were trying to say like, oh, she was a trophy wife who sat at home spending all this money on their house. It's like, because he wouldn't let her work and he was telling her to. Yeah, no. <laughs> this man is a liar. He's a liar. And he lied about what their financial situation was even when they were on the precipice of financial ruin. Yep. Well, around the time of the layoffs, one old lie came back to bite Jonathan in the ass, and that was when his mother inadvertently revealed to Michelle Jonathan's true birth year. They were at a birthday party, and they were talking about it, and she made some comment about how she couldn't believe that her son was 52 years old. And she was like, uh, no, my husband's 44. He was born in 1958. And she was like, I gave birth to him. Think I know when he was born. Oh, my God. So Michelle was very rightfully pissed because they had already been married to each other for over a decade and he had never felt it was time to reveal through three children, through companies, through moves, never trusted her with that information that he, their entire basis of the relationship was built on a lie. So she is getting very resentful about their entire situation. Did she speak with him about it or did she just not say there was a fight about it yeah it was it definitely she confronted him about it and i don't really know what his excuse was other than i loved you and maybe i didn't think you were going to be interested that's me speculating because i didn't find any research or detail about how he responded to her confronting him about this so trouble was definitely already brewing in their relationship because he is in a lot of stress right now trying to save his company trying to save his position within the company He's also trying to save his marriage because she's clearly unhappy with him about lying. And he's trying to tell her to tamp down the spending without revealing all the myriad ways that he has failed professionally. So there's a lot of stress. There's a lot of resentment. There's a lot of anger. Jonathan's carefully curated lies and the power balance that he wanted to hold, which is I'm powerful and I'm giving to you and you're weaker. And he was very white savior too, like sending through her, sending money to her family in the Philippines. Like he was trying so hard to cling to this and there was about to be a wrecking ball coming through this marriage and his name was Enyo. All right. In July of 2002, Michelle once again had the same nursery come to plant more trees 
And this time, I think, given the sad state of their relationship, given that she was alienated from everyone and that she had never been with another man in her entire life, she did end up giving this landscaper her phone number. They started embarking on a relationship. And at first they were more friendly. And then obviously it developed into something more romantic and sexual. So he told her that his name was Alex Castaneda, but to call him Enyo. And remember, his real given name is Miguel de Jesus. And the reason he did this is because this also was not a good guy. He was also a liar. He also told Michelle he was from Guatemala and he was actually from Puerto Rico. And he had three different names and three different social security numbers. It is so much to keep up with. A lot. So at the time he struck up a romance with Michelle, he had a common law wife named Patricia, whom he was raising two young daughters with. But in addition to those children, he also had a third daughter who had been fathered during an affair with an ex-colleague and whom he had completely ignored, resulting in a warrant being issued for non-payment of child support. Wait, but it's not his kid. Oh, the other guy ignored the kid. Well, no, no, no. He was having the affair. I don't know about the other woman's husband's situation. But when it was revealed that he was biologically the father through a DNA test, he still didn't want to pay child support and ignored the child completely, which resulted in a warrant being issued for non-payment of child support. And in order to evade that warrant and having to pay child support for the child he was absolutely biologically the father of, Enyo had instead adopted the Alexander Castaneda name and gotten some false paperwork to prop up that lie, which is why he was using that name when he met Michelle. So his Miguel just died? Or Miguel is just... There was a third name, too. And I don't know. There had to be a reason why he switched from the third name, too. So I think it was like Miguel de Jesus was his given name. And then there was a secondary name. And then the third one was Alexander Castaneda. So all in all, there had to be a lot of reasons why this guy was using different names. Yeah. So he had three, three names, three social security cards. He had a common law wife and two children, another child as a result of an affair whom he did not see and did not pay for. And he still was having other affairs beyond Michelle on Patricia. He was not a classically handsome guy, so I have to assume he must have had some real game or something going on because this guy had a lot of women in his life. And Michelle seemed very smitten with him right away. So yeah, like I said, the couple did not immediately get into a sexual relationship. At the beginning, they texted, they chatted on the phone, they would meet up for lunch. They would sometimes get drinks during the day. Michelle started buying him expensive presents. She gave him a fancy watch. She gave him a nice coat. She even bought him some jewelry. And throughout these conversations, Michelle had an outlet to share how unhappy she was in her life, yep. which was not something she even shared with her family. It wasn't something she shared with her friends. She very specifically on purpose tried to also contribute to this image of this relationship that they had. And it was all built on lies. Not only had he lied to her about his age, 
when she came to the United States, he coached her in a new story. He didn't want people to know that she was essentially a mail order bride or that they had met through a pen pal type situation because obviously online dating was so far off. We're talking about the late 80s. So this was looked down upon. So he crafted a story that he was at a medical conference in Hawaii and she had been vacationing there and that he took a day off from the conference to go surfing and tripped over her leg on the beach. What? And that their eyes met and it was just magic. And then they stayed in touch after that. And that's when this whole relationship started. Now, he later says, well, that was Michelle's idea. She was embarrassed about being a pen pal bride. And I didn't want her to feel bad. So I went along with it. But everyone else says that it was the other way around. He didn't want to look bad to his community. So he made it sound like they had just magically met and this beautiful young woman just fell in love with him on the spot. Love at first sight. In Hawaii while he's surfing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you saw the picture of him from their wedding. He doesn't look exactly like Mr. Surfer Dude. No. <laughs> so I think that this was her only outlet. This was the only person that she felt like she could really communicate with about everything that was really going on in her life. And again, cheating is never a good idea, guys. We are very anti-infidelity here, yeah. obviously. I think that I'm contextualizing it because... This is just such a sad situation for Michelle. Yeah. Well, and like you were saying, if she's she's like complicit in the lying as well with certain things with family and friends. And so it's she really can't be honest with them either. So this is the only person that she can tell everything to. Exactly. And yeah. that intimacy, that emotional intimacy did end up leading to sexual intimacy. Yeah. I mean, it could have been she could have met like a random new friend who she could have said that stuff too, but it just so happened to be someone who she also ended up finding romantic. Yeah. And, you know, no one knew about this affair at all. Her very best friends said that they were picking up just based on body language and spending time with the couple that something was not all correct between Jonathan and Michelle. But Michelle did not give them any verbal indication. She didn't and she never told them about her affair with Enyo at all. So when a lot of this comes to light later on, everyone is shocked. Yeah, for a guy who's so controlling, you could probably be surprised. Like, how did he not know that this affair had started or even emotional affair? But you have to remember that this is the time that his company is completely failing. He is traveling a lot. He's trying to secure more investment. He's trying to bail himself out of trouble. So it makes sense that maybe he wouldn't have known exactly what was going on at home, especially if the kids are in school and she's meeting up with this guy during the day. Yep. And things were just getting worse. So obviously his wife's now having an affair. And then the board of Epigenesis told him to take a little break yeah. while they looked at his performance. Never a good sign. Nope. So Michelle and Jonathan made a trip back to the Philippines during this time period when he is taking a little break while they review his performance and decide what to do with him. And it just sucked because Michelle was so happy to go home, but he would not let their children come with them to their mother's home country because he said he was worried that they were going to get kidnapped. So the children stayed in the United States and him and her went together? Yes. That is yeah, isn't that strange? So weird. Wouldn't you want your kids to see, like, she? they're going to be half Filipino. Absolutely. Which I do think we're going to get deeper into this. And I feel like he very purposely 
did not allow them access to that part of their heritage. Yep. Okay. I've heard of this happening before too, not just with Filipino families, but like with any, it's always in controlling relationships when this happens. Exactly. And I do think that when he says kidnapped, he made it sound to her like it was just a random person on the street. But I think he knew that the relationship was going poorly. And I think maybe there was some fear that her family members could take the children or hide the children somewhere. And she has the mother who has dual citizenship could say, no, my kids can stay with me here in the Philippines if she decided to divorce him. Yep. So I think he was always thinking ahead about Michelle leaving him, which also made him go crazy with anxiety. And I think that was another reason why he prevented the children from coming with them on this trip. But family members of Michelle also said that they fought the entire time that they were on this trip, that it was bad, that Michelle was no longer a wilting flower who just took it. She was pissed off. She was tired of this situation. And she was yelling at him back. And they were actually beginning to have real big fights at this point. Yeah. She's also empowered by being in her home country as well. Yes. Yeah. And he does a lot of stuff where he was saying things like, oh, you should be so grateful to me. And I send enough money to build these houses and buy farm animals and all this stuff. It's like, okay, calm down. Things did not get better when they returned. After they got home, Jonathan was officially let go at the end of March 2003. According to Jonathan, he received a generous severance payment. He said that he was getting his salary for a year, if not two years. And so because he had that money coming in, that he was going to pursue a dream of his, which is to write children's poetry. Children's poetry? That was his goal in life. He wanted to, I guess, be like the next Shel Silverstein. <laughs> wow. Unsurprisingly, he could not find a publisher who was interested, and we did not get to experience that joy in life. So he is not working. He says he had some severance. He's trying his hand at writing children's poetry, but the bills are just piling up. I mean, this family was definitely living far beyond their means. He had also, I think, spent a little of the money he thought he was going to get in equity ahead of time. He counted his equity chickens before they were hatched. Yeah, I was going to say, like, when you get an investment like that in your business, it's supposed to be going towards the research, not towards your new house. Exactly. And so I think he was putting a lot of stuff on credit cards, assuming that... Yeah. There was going to be massive bonuses. There was going to be equity down the line. So they're deeply in debt. The bills are piling up. And Jonathan is not going out to find another job. He is staying home all day monitoring his wife's every action. I believe this was on purpose because he was suspecting that something was going on. Now, this does not do anything to make their relationship better because now Michelle cannot leave the house to meet up with her lover because her husband is home with her every day, all day, yep. asking her what she's doing and where she's going. So she is building even more resentment and frustration towards him. And I don't know, we always say just get a divorce, but I think in Michelle's case, it was pretty complicated. He had all the power in the relationship. They were in the United States and I could very much see based on this personality and she would know best because she was married to him, him being very vitriolic and saying, I'm going to take the kids. I'm going to leave you with nothing. 
and you can go back to your home country and I'll never let my children ever visit. Yeah. Looking for a really cool gift to impress your parents, grandparents, or loved ones? A really great choice comes from the sponsor of today's episode, mylifeinabook.com. They offer a fun way to get to know your loved ones better, collect timeless memories for future generations, and really bring the family together. It's simple. You select from a series of fun and exciting questions that you wouldn't think to ask, such as, what's the funniest memory you have of your siblings? Or, do you have a secret that you never told your own parents? And then it gets emailed to them and they write an answer and can even attach a meaningful photo. This happens every week. At the end of one year, they all get compiled and printed in a beautiful keepsake book. And you can get copies for all of your family members if you want. And to make sure that you preserve it digitally in case anything happens to the physical copies, you can also get it in audio format. With mylifeinabook.com, you can show your loved ones they are meaningful to your family and help build their legacy. I've tried it with my grandmother and she totally loved it. To save $10 off your first purchase, use discount code LOVEMURDER. That's LOVEMURDER to get $10 off on mylifeinabook.com. Andy, I could not be more excited to share today's sponsor with our listeners. With Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. You can learn photography from Annie Leibovitz, fashion design from Marc Jacobs, or learn tennis with Serena Williams. With over 180 classes from a range of world-class instructors, that thing you've always wanted to do is a little closer than you think. Masterclass classes are accessible however you want to watch, via phone, web, or smart TV. Each class is broken out into individual lessons that are usually about 10 minutes long and are supported with additional materials to help members learn. These are cinema-quality classes that give you unparalleled access to a renowned instructor and annual membership starts at just $180 a year. I've loved a lot of classes on Masterclass. Neil Gaiman is one of my favorite authors, and I absolutely loved his art of storytelling. There's also a new one that I'm most excited about, pretty much more than any other, and it's a class with FBI Special Agent John Douglas. He was an absolute pioneer of modern profiling as the chief of the Bureau's National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime. This is the guy who inspired Silence of the Lambs and, of course, you know him from Mindhunter. On his new class, he's going to bring us into the interrogation room with infamous criminals like Charles Manson and John Wayne Gacy. He breaks down how he applied his methods to interview the most notorious serial killers and how you can use them every day to better understand human behavior. We highly recommend you check it out. This holiday, give the perfect gift of an annual Masterclass membership and get one free. Go to masterclass.com slash lovemurder today. That's masterclass.com slash lovemurder. Terms apply. So usually in this case, I would say just get a divorce. Stop having an affair. Stop with the fighting. But I, I don't really know what Michelle's circumstances were and how she felt about being powerless, not having a greater education, even if she had had a greater education when people come to the United States from other countries, a lot of times their degrees are disregarded. Yeah. And I'm not sure where, like, I think at this point she was a full U.S. citizen, but I'm sure she was insecure about her rights. So this is a definitely a more complicated situation. Although, again, cheating does not help any situation. <laughs> it's, it's not good to throw a, <laughs> a cheating Maldive cocktail on this already burning pyre. So things started getting real toxic real fast with them after he lost his job. 
he was stalking her, he would call her. So if she'd say, well, I'm going to go out with a friend to get lunch or we're going to do some shopping or something, he would call her and say, put your friend on the phone. I want to make sure you're actually with her. Wow. Just huge red flags just all around. If you're the person who's that's being done to, your partner is controlling and dangerous and that's not good. And if you're the one doing it, then that means that you don't trust your partner. Yep. That means that you need to look inside yourself and figure out what's going on. And even if they are cheating, then you need to address that head on and be like, hey, I know my behavior has been off the wall lately. It's because I'm feeling very insecure about something and, and you're not telling me everything. And then figure out, like, go to couples therapy. Or if they just keep lying to you, then maybe you have to decide, I value myself more than this relationship and I need to get out of it. Yeah. Because they're still lying to me. But, like, constantly stalking them. He hired a private investigator. And... At the same time, Enyo's wife, I'm going to call her wife, they were common law, she's also suspecting something. So she found Michelle's panties in his pocket. She found some text messages that were suggestive on his phone. So she even went to the nice's house to confront Michelle or maybe tell Jonathan what was going on, but no one was home except for Michelle's dad, Teodoro, who was visiting. Whoa. Yeah. And at the same time, he's hired a private investigator and he used Michelle's phone bill to discover who she'd been texting and where he worked. So he figured out the connection. He managed to get Enyo's address. And so he drove to Enyo's address. He called one of his friends and was crying, saying that he was going to kill the guy, that he was going to attack him if he saw him. And his friend, it was a woman, she was a former colleague of his, was like, don't do that. That helps nobody. Like, you need to calm down. You just need to talk to Michelle about this. But police believe at that point, after he got Enyo's address and he was standing outside his home and he didn't see him, thankfully, he then went to this Shell gas station that was across the street from this sleazy motel that the couple used to have rendezvous in. And his decision was that he was going to get rid of this guy he was going to first trap michelle into telling him the truth and then he was going to do something to try to get this guy out of their life so he ended up calling his own cell phone twice from the gas station payphone, and then he went home and when michelle got home he said look i received two phone calls from this anonymous man and he told me that he's been having an affair with you and he played a bit of a sex tape that he says he has of you. So do you want to tell me what's going on? And at first, Michelle did try to lie. She tried to say that she had picked up a side job working as a sex phone operator. Okay. And that that must have been lifted from that conversation. And he's like, I know the truth. Don't lie to me. And she finally broke down and then she said, okay, I did have an affair, but it was only twice and I was drunk. And then he's like, nope, wrong again. Let's do this again. Tell me the truth. And at that point, through lots of tears, she did admit that she had been having an ongoing emotional and sexual affair. So Jonathan then forced her to call Enyo in his presence and break off the relationship, which she did. Whoa. Yeah. So he would later tell the police that the couple at that point decided to stay together for their children and that they were committed to healing the marriage. A poem he wrote two days after this all went down would imply that he wasn't quite over and ready to move 
through what they were going through. He wrote in this poem, Michelle, your stainless steel heart, like a knife, rips open my soul to bleed unattended, dying, with another man's semen still warm within your belly. Oh my God. You call me on the telephone. Oh my God. You call me on the telephone and you tell me not to worry. When, oh when, will my dying end? So yeah, this is not the poem of a man who is like processing healthfully and working through it and forgiving so that they can move forward with a clean slate. No, it's violent and graphic. It appeared that he did not trust Michelle to actually stop seeing Enyo. So two weeks after this, this confrontation, he fabricated an extortion attempt on Enyo's part, saying that the landscaper had demanded a half million dollars in order to not publish a sex tape that he had made with Michelle. So Jonathan went to the police and demanded that they arrest Enyo for blackmail. So they thoroughly investigated this. Enyo was obviously not a stand-up guy, but there was no evidence that this happened at all. They pulled the camera security footage from the shell, and there was no evidence of either of his cars, his personal car or his landscaping truck, coming into the parking lot at any point during the time that Jonathan said he received these calls. Oh, my God. He also had, they pulled all of the phone records. They interviewed people in Enyo's life. This was not a thing that was actually happening. And also... At the same time, Michelle says that we never did a sex tape. Yes, I had an affair with him, but we never taped it. He never had his phone out. I mean, and I know that people can secretly tape things, but she had no inkling that this could have been a possibility. So Jonathan's like, well, he wanted this guy to go away. He's like, I don't know what to do. I'm worried about my wife staying away from this guy in his brain. This is what I'm guessing, he said. So I'm going to try to set him up to make him look like he is extorting us. But the police just threw the case out because there was just no evidence that it was actually happening that way. Wild goose chase. Thank you for wasting taxpayer dollars on this. Yeah. Well, whether it was due to the couple's dwindling finances or because he wanted to punish Michelle, Jonathan cut off all access to their bank account and credit cards and put her on a $300 a month allowance. Uh, what? Yeah, and it was extra fucked because... He would do things like give her lavish gifts or take her on a trip with him to be like, I can still be generous. Look at me. I brought you home a present. I took you on this trip. He apparently got on Viagra so he could have sex with her more. Poor Michelle. And he was trying to control the situation so much that he was denying her any independence, putting her down to a $300 a month allowance. How do you even do that? No, that's not for the kids, too. That's just for her. That was what was reported by John Glatt in this book. And I have no idea where the grocery money was coming from because groceries are more than $300 a month. A week. Yeah. I can't believe how many fucking raspberries my daughter eats. <laughs> yeah, the produce will get you, that fresh produce. So he was like, this is emotional manipulation, being like, I'm going to cut off everything, but then I'll give you presents, so you should be happy with what I'm giving you, which seemed to be his M.O. She said, screw it, I'm going to get a job. You're not going to get a job. I'm going to get a job, and I'm, I'm going to go out there and do it for myself, which is good for her. 
So she began to work at the Chanel counter at the Macy's in a mall nearby where they lived over the summer of 2003. I know. Those are some nice perks, I imagine. I would hope so. Well, Michelle came alive in her new role outside of the house. Jonathan became even more untethered. He still suspected at this point. He either knew, because I think he was actually visiting her, or he was just really anxious and paranoid about it. But he thought Enyo might be visiting Michelle while she was working. Crazy. And it's possible that he was, because they were still in touch. Now, this is all crazy, too, because when this whole extortion thing happened, he was also trying to make claims that Enyo was stalking them, which there was no evidence that happened, but Jonathan was harassing Enyo. So there was a bunch of, eventually the judge was like, look, you're all getting restraining orders. That's where we're at. Because Jonathan's like, I want a restraining order against this guy. And he was like, I want a restraining order against that guy. And the judge's like, restraining orders for everyone. You stay away from this guy and his wife. You guys stay away from him. Yeah. If you guys are in the same place, you walk away. If if this guy is, if he's at the mall and Michelle's working, she, he has to turn around and he has to leave. So they had restraining orders against each other. But definitely Michelle and Enyo are still in conversation in defiance Which of Which obviously orders. then the restraining order is null and void. Yes. So this is Jonathan just trying to control the situation. Which it's like, dude, you do not trust your wife. You don't trust your wife. Your wife is obviously out the door. She should have just divorced you, but she's terrified of what you're going to do because you're acting like this. Ugh, it's just, it's a mess all around here. It's really sad for Michelle. I mean, this is domestic abuse. He's alienating her. He's cutting off her finances. This is domestic abuse. So, I mean, she's a sufferer and she's looking for an outlet right now. There seemed to be a brief detente in the nicest relationship at some point while she's working at the Chanel counter. Okay. Where Jonathan acknowledged that Michelle was a gifted saleswoman. That he said he was really proud of her. That she was, I guess, the top saleswoman for several months while she was working there. And that she clearly had a knack for perfume and makeup. So he suggested that maybe their next big thing together was developing a perfume based on the national flower of the Philippines. And Michelle was genuinely excited for this opportunity But the joy and peace that they kind of very briefly had when they decided to work together on this project was shattered when Jonathan told her in September that they were going to sell their New Jersey house for $1.6 million, which is more like 2.6 today, and that they were going to be downsizing to move to rural Pennsylvania to be closer to Jonathan's parents. Okay. Yeah, she was not happy about this. She had friends. She had a job she loved. She was happy. She did not want to try to rebuild in a rural area. I don't know where she would have worked in that area. And also, she had never connected with her in-laws, whom she told friends had always looked down on her. Okay. So he's trying to further isolate her at this point. Of course, from his mind... I can almost see how he's justifying this to himself. He's saying, we can make a lot of money in the house. We are going to live within our means. It's a lot cheaper to live in rural Pennsylvania. You're going to be away from Enyo. You're going to be away from Enyo. The kids get to be near their grandparents. Like, this is all to get her away from Enyo, basically. And any sense of independence that she has. The fighting reached fever pitch levels with Jonathan punching holes in the wall with his fists in anger and Michelle nearly calling the police on him a handful of times. It was just 
bad. Everything was bad at this point. And she was getting to a level of, I don't care anymore. I don't care what the fallout is. I have to get out of this marriage. I'm not moving. So this is kind of where she stopped caring. She still wasn't letting friends of the couple know how bad things were, but she had befriended a 21-year-old girl who worked with her at work. That's a great person to talk to about all that. Yes, and they were both from the Philippines, so they had a lot of cultural references in common. Um, Michelle at this point was 34, but she had lost all of her 20s. And I mean, most of her teen years, too, to just working and trying to find a better lifestyle for herself and her family. So she, through this young woman, had somebody to confide in. And they also started going out and hanging out and partying together. And she didn't care anymore. She was like, Jonathan would be like, when are you going to come home? And she's like, I'm going out with Amy. I don't know when I'll be home. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Like, he wasn't working, so he was there to take care of the kids. But also sitting at home, he's like, yeah. So he's sitting at home stewing. She's saying, I know the kids are in good hands because you're there. You don't have any responsibilities. And I'm going to go out and I'll be home when I get home because I missed out on all of this because I was I had a baby at 20 years old or 21 years old. So there were very few insiders privy to the meltdown of this marriage. And most had no idea what was really going on. On New Year's Eve, Jonathan and Michelle threw a lavish party for 24 of their friends. They did karaoke, seemed like they were having a good time, and they even made travel plans for their friends in the year to come. Even as they were listing this house and trying to sell it, they were saying, well, even if we move, we are going to meet up in Mexico. We'll do this with you. Maybe we'll plan some other things that means we'll stay in each other's lives. However, Michelle's father had been visiting He'd been there for, I think, a few months at that point, helping with the kids. And he had, of course, been a party to the tension in the relationship. But he also had no idea that Michelle was really planning to leave until the night he left, which was January 9th. He was leaving to go back to the Philippines. And she said, Dad, it's really bad. I'm done. I'm absolutely done. And I'm just waiting for the house to sell and everything to get a little bit more settled. And then I'm going to divorce him is what she said. Well, less than a week after that, life was business as usual for the Nice family. On Thursday, January 15th, 2004, a large snowfall resulted in school being closed. Jonathan spent the day with the children and Michelle prepared for her 4 p.m. shift at Macy's. When she left for work, she told Jonathan that she would be going out with her friend afterwards. However, Michelle had actually made plans to see Enyo, the illicit lover she just could not quit. Michelle ended up getting out of work at 9.15 p.m. She touched up her makeup, and then she met Enyo in the parking lot of an Applebee's. The two then drove separately to their favorite rent by the Hour Motel, which I kid you not was called Mounts Motel. (laughs) Mounts. Mountain. I'm sure there's like a million hilarious nicknames for establishments that rent by the hour, but I'm going to call it a, a hump dump. It is a hump dump. It's a hump dump. There they engaged in a lot of sex. And they also had conversation. They took a shower together. She told him that she was worried that Jonathan was paying somebody in their neighborhood to follow her around. She didn't trust what was going on. So it was not sure when they were going to see each other again until she was actually divorced. And then at midnight, the front desk called to tell them that their time was up. (laughs) That was all the time they had paid for and they had needed to get GTFO. 
So at that point, they dressed and Enya walked Michelle to her SUV and he said goodbye. And then he ended up going straight to a bar. He had actually developed his own alibi with his own wife, Patricia, saying that he was going out for drinks. And so he met up with a friend and downed two beers super quickly so that that friend could say that they were together and also that he smelled like beer. Okay. And then he went right home to his wife who made him sleep on the couch because she didn't want him to snore. Meanwhile, he had no idea that across town, that was the last time he was ever going to see Michelle ever again. And then the very next morning, after only a matter of hours, Michelle's body would be found beaten and bloodied, frozen stiff in her land cruiser in a frigid creek in Hopewell Township. So we are back to the beginning. When police arrived on the scene, they noted that Michelle's death had certainly not been the result of a car accident. First of all, it was visibly clear that Michelle's injuries were horrific and extensive. The Land Cruiser had no damage to its body at all. To sustain the injuries that Michelle had, especially in a vehicle as big and solid as a Land Cruiser, it would have had to look like it was in terrible condition. Yeah. Number two, there was blood found outside of the car, which we already talked about, which didn't make sense if it was just a single car accident. And then, of course, there were the gosh darn footsteps in the snow leading away from the vehicle. So the police were able to look up the Land Cruiser's license plate registration number, and they identified the owner as one Dr. Jonathan Nice. When they went to go see him, one of the officers noted that he quickly closed his garage door in a very sketchy manner, as though he did not want them to see what was in the garage. Oh, my God. They didn't have a warrant at this point, too, so they couldn't just say, hey, open up that door. I want to see what you just closed. Can't they ask, though? They can ask if they can come in? Probably. Yeah, and if they have like now, the permission from the person, then they can... They also did not know exactly what they were dealing with here. They did not know until they started questioning him that it was his wife in the car. Yeah. They didn't know if maybe somebody stole the car, maybe he's sold the car since, and they didn't change the registration over. It could have been anything. Yeah. So at the beginning, they're just trying to establish what's the relationship to the car and is there a potential relationship to the victim in the car. But when they did finally establish that and they told him that it appeared that his wife had been in a fatal car accident, his reaction surprised them because it was almost like a non-reaction. It was just, he was like, oh, okay. Like that there wasn't a surprise. There wasn't shock. He hadn't been worried about where his wife was after all this time. He hadn't called to report her missing when she hadn't come home. Because it's, it's the morning now, so she had been out all night, and he didn't think to call the police. And instead, he just says, well, I don't know. She, she goes out all the time. She doesn't come home. You know, she's cheating on me. And he starts talking about this affair that she's been having. And he continues to talk about it even after his five-year-old daughter comes into the room and sits on his lap to do a coloring book. And he's just in the open talking about his wife cheating on him and details of the affair. The officers were stunned. This is obviously an inappropriate conversation to have in front of your child. So this all struck them as very strange. The next day, Jonathan consented to coming down to the police station for a more formal questioning. And they began to catch him in lies. The biggest being that he claimed he had not seen Michelle since she left in the afternoon for work. So he's like, I haven't seen her. She left for work. She went out after work. I don't know what's going on. But then 
once they got questioning him further, he did admit that they weren't having a great time in their marriage and that, in fact, the previous night they had argued about getting divorced. So what is it? She left at, you know, 3.30 p.m. and you didn't see her? Or was it that last night you argued about getting divorced? Yeah. It was abundantly clear that the relationship had been deeply troubled and Jonathan did his very best to implicate Enyo in whatever had happened to Michelle, bringing up his prior claims of extortion and stalking. The authorities were getting red flags everywhere from Jonathan, so they began the process of obtaining search warrants for the nice house and the Land Cruiser. Meanwhile, Mercer County Medical Examiner Dr. Ahmad determined that Michelle's death had been set up to look like a car accident, but was most definitely a homicide. Beyond what we already have talked about, like the blood on the outside of the car, her injuries were not consistent with a car crash, and she had obvious defensive wounds. Michelle had been viciously beat to death following a struggle, The autopsy revealed massive injuries to her head and face, lacerations so deep that her skull was visible, as well as a 13 and a half centimeter skull fracture going from the eye socket to the base of the skull, which the medical examiner believed was consistent to being struck hard with something like a baseball bat. Oh, my God. Michelle's beating had been so brutal that she was covered in bruises from head to toe. And there were clear finger marks, like bruise marks, around her upper arm, consistent with somebody grabbing and pulling her hard. She had brain damage, and she also had internal bruising, severe bruising, to her spleen, pancreas, adrenal glands, and lymph nodes. Most disturbingly, Dr. Ahmad found evidence that Michelle had not died quickly. There was bloody froth in her lungs that indicated that she had been breathing in her own blood for roughly 10 minutes after she sustained her injuries, but before she passed away. Oh, my God. The report concluded that Michelle's cause of death was homicide by being beaten to death. After the authorities excluded Enyo from the suspect pool, he had an alibi all night because he went from her to his buddies to his home with his wife and his children. And he was honest about being with her? He was honest about being with her, yes. He was honest about all parts of the affair. He didn't have anything to hide. He didn't do anything to hurt her. I mean, his wife had to deal with this, which was terrible. But that was the only thing he had to hide. And at that point, he knew that looking like a cheater was better than looking like a killer. Uh, Yeah. So they shifted their focus to Dr. Jonathan Nice. Well, Jonathan might have been a scientific genius, but he was absolute trash at getting rid of evidence. When the forensic techs looked under fluorescent lights, there was blood evidence all over the garage. It was on the floor. It was on the door frame. It was everywhere. And it was clear from the pattern that somebody had attempted to clean it up. There was also a bottle of peroxide just sitting there out like laying out in the garage. Oh my God. They found a white plastic bag full of bloody paper towels and a soaking wet pair of men's pajama bottoms that had been stuffed behind the couch. Weirdly, it looks like he had panicked because there was already stuff in the washer. And so he had just tried to rinse them in the sink and then shove them behind his couch to hide them when the police were coming. Weird. 
Yes. And there was bloody water found in the washing machine. So he had tried to launder his clothes, apparently, or some other towels that he used to clean up. And then, most importantly, they discovered a baseball bat with blood stains on it in the garage. Okay. So, like, red-handed, right? Red-handed. Seriously. This guy barely even tried, or he didn't have the time to do it. So... They were discovering this in the house, and he wasn't in the house, obviously, because they were searching it. So I think he was at his brother's or his parents at this point. And they're like, yeah, we're going to need you to come down to the station. And they Mirandized him. And they told him that he could get an attorney. It's all on tape. If you watch the Paula's on episode, they have the recording of him oh saying it's okay, it's fine. So he turned down the chance to get an attorney, and he stated that he wanted to cooperate with the authorities. So he spent the first couple hours of this interrogation trying to pin it all on Enyo, denying any involvement with Michelle's death, saying he didn't know where she was, she hadn't been home, he has no idea about anything. But then around hour four or so, he broke down. And this, this was a very telling breakdown. He broke down when he asked the detective if Michelle had been with her lover that night. And the detective said... You know, I've been honest with you. I'm going to stay being honest with you. I'm going to shoot it to you straight. She was. She was with, they were calling him Castaneda at that point because that's what she knew him as and that's what Jonathan knew him him as. She was with Alex Castaneda that night. And he said, did they have sex? And the investigator said, yes, they had sex. And at that point, he completely broke down. He started crying. Now, this is very much, again, points to him looking at her as a possession. When he has word that she was in a fatal car accident, there's almost no emotion. But when he finds out that his possession was with another man and was having sex with that other man that night, this is what breaks him. Yep. So at that point, he said, I didn't mean to kill her. Jonathan claimed that after Michelle returned home, the couple had fought and that Michelle had attacked him with a stiletto-style knife. He said he acted in self-defense by pushing her to the ground and her head made a thud. That's what he's saying happened. Jonathan said that the death had been unintentional, but then he had panicked and made the decision to make it look like a car accident so his children would not know that their mother had tried to kill him. Oh, my God. Fucking victim. Yep. He put her body in the Land Cruiser and he ended up driving it to the creek that was nearby In a very bizarre way. I think he was worried that there might be like cameras that would catch him. So he put her in the driver's seat and he crouched down in the passenger side and he used an ice scraper, one of the ice scrapers for your car, to press on the gas while he steered the car so it would look like she was driving the car. So he said that he did that. He managed to get it to Jacob's Creek and roll it into the creek where it was eventually found and then he left and walked home so that is what his story is now here's what law enforcement thinks really happened they believe that jonathan was aware that the affair had resumed as early as the first week of december apparently michelle had been taking advantage of the fact that there were late hours and extra hours at the mall because of the holiday shopping season okay so they think around the first week maybe sometime during December, he had figured out that she was still seeing Enyo. And he was seething in rage about this situation. And it was building and building and building inside him. 
And then when she came home at 1245 in the morning, he was mad. He was like, where, where, how, where have you been? And she basically said, go F yourself. I'm not going to tell you anything. I don't care. I'm not telling you. And so they ended up getting into a passionate argument. And Jonathan was demanding to know where she had been, who she had been with. And based on the physical evidence in the home, they found a broken wine glass in her closet. And there was a suitcase found in the Land Cruiser with her. They believe that at that point, she said, you know what? I'm not doing this. Went up to their bedroom where their children were sleeping in their bed. And got a suitcase out of her closet, filled it up with some stuff and told him she was out of there. She was leaving. So she brought it back downstairs and she managed to get it into the car. But as she tried to get into the Land Cruiser to escape, they believe that her six foot four husband, she's five two. Yeah. Grabbed her out of the car and she's pulling and they think that's when maybe those bruise marks on her arms happened that she's trying to get away from him he's pulling her and when he basically really realized that she was going she said she was going to get a divorce this is it this is the end of the road for their relationship and he's lost everything else that it was then that he grabbed a nearby baseball bat that was in their garage because it was something their children played with yeah and began to beat her to death they said it looked like based on the blood evidence in the autopsy that she had been hit terribly twice in the head with the baseball bat, but then she had fallen on the floor. They think she, maybe she hit her head on the way down on the Land Cruiser's running board. She lifted her arms up at that point to protect herself from the future blows, which were the defensive wounds that were found. And then it looked like she tried to stand, but there was a slippage. Either she, I mean, her blood was all over the floor. Either she slipped in her blood and fell and he slammed her head into the concrete floor multiple times or that he grabbed her while she was trying to escape and slammed her down. End result is it the same. He killed her. Yes. This was not also, I pushed her away from me. Because she had a knife. oopsies, she fell. Because there was multiple horrific injuries that were very deep and very deliberate. Obviously, at this time, Jonathan was arrested for his wife's murder. Even though he confessed and was thoroughly Mirandized on tape, when Jonathan got an attorney, his whole story changed. He then tried to say he was completely innocent, that he did not kill his wife at all. So I think that they were going for that because... What his defense was trying to go for is that they were trying to get this confession thrown out. They were trying to say that he wasn't properly Mirandized, but he was. And that if they were able to get the confession thrown out, then they would have gone, I think, whole bore into Enyo being the one who did it. He's not a good guy. He's got a warrant out for his arrest for non-payment of child support. He's had multiple affairs. He has three different aliases. This guy would be a prime patsy to take the fall for good Dr. Nice with his multiple degrees. And like, even though he failed in his company, you know, his fancy multimillion dollar house and well-respected in the medical community or whatnot. So I think that was the goal. But when they could not get this confession thrown out, they're like, okay, we got to roll the dice going for whatever we can. Which, unfortunately, when the trial began in June of 2005, was a complete annihilation of Michelle's character. 
Robin Lord, Jonathan's attorney, portrayed Michelle as a promiscuous gold digger who spent her time running around having affairs and not tending to her children when everyone who knew her said her children were everything to her and she loved them absolutely and had, by the way, devoted all of her entire life to them. She was a stay-at-home mom. Robin Lord went in on Michelle, the actual victim. She said that this was a woman who was having unprotected sex with a gardener in a seedy rent-by-the-hour motel. All the while, good-hearted Jonathan was not only providing sumptuously for her and giving her thousands of dollars to send back to her family in the Philippines, but just loving her and giving her everything she desired. And then murdering her. And then... Well, yeah, she seemed to skip over the part where she he controlled and alienated and isolated and financially abused all of that. There was even an insinuation that Michelle and Enyo had plotted for Michelle to kill Jonathan that night so that they could be together and she could get all of the money from the house sale, which is so ridiculous. I don't think any person who is. 5'2", and literally half the size of a gigantic man, because he was about 6'4", and I think 250, would attack him with a knife. Like, you would poison, or you would shoot, or something, but you're, like, he's going to get that knife away. Rationalizing (laughs) what crimes would work. Well, I just don't think anyone who's, like, literally half the size of somebody else would be like, this is, this tiny little knife is going to get him. Yeah. Like, He's very clearly going to get that knife away from you. Yeah, no, it's not. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. And then how is she going to cover that up? Nor do I think realistically she would even have done anything like that with the kids there. No, of course not. Of course she would not have. And also they never found this so-called knife. And the attorney is like questioning the police like, well, did you check the storm drains? And they're like, yeah, we checked the storm drains. Dude, lady, this knife was not there. There was no knife. Oh, my God. Yes. So... Robin Lord said that, yes, of course, we admit that Jonathan made a colossal error in not calling the police immediately and saying, I was fighting in self-defense. I accidentally killed my wife when she attacked me first and instead setting it up to look like a car accident. But of course, she said he was just doing that to protect the children he loved so much. Now, if he's protecting the children from knowing that their mother tried to kill him because it was important to him, then I'm very surprised that he's going for this smear campaign defense, that this is what he's going for, because I think this is going to impugn their mother's character more than... Even talking about her in front of the cops with the kids. Yes! Like, this is not consistent with his behavior. Meanwhile, the prosecution contended that Jonathan was a liar. He lied to Michelle from the beginning. He lied to investors about his business. He lied to friends and family about how he met Michelle. And he was damn sure lying about how he killed her. Yep, the whole thing. The prosecution argued that Jonathan was a controlling, obsessive man who had attempted to isolate and alienate Michelle, who had successfully alienated Michelle's children from her home country and most of her relatives. I mean, they got to spend time with their grandfather when he was living with them. But for the most part, they did not know a lot of their Filipino family. Yep. He was a proud man brought low by losing his high-paying job and then insult to injury his wife, more prized possession than equal partner, to a landscaper, a man that he, of course, would think he was somehow better than. So it's more disturbing to his ego that she would leave him for somebody who has a low-paying job, who doesn't have the education that he has. 
If he couldn't have her, no one would. In the end, Jonathan killed Michelle for being unfaithful. Is infidelity wrong? Absolutely, we've already covered this. But does anyone deserve to die because of it? Emphatically, no, of course not. The prosecution also reminded the jury that Michelle was not there to give her side of the story. They're just hearing Jonathan saying that he loved his wife so much, he was madly in love with her, he would do anything for her, that he tried to give and give and give, he tried to forgive, Saint Jonathan. he tried to look the other way. St. Jonathan, he spent money to her family. Her family's like, he never sent us anything. She sent us money, which, I mean, I understand caveat, she was sending his yes. money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yes, they're like, he didn't interact with us. He, this man wasn't engaged in our community. He wasn't out here trying to like help us build a farm. He sent some money through Michelle. He's not our savior. And it was super F too because her family members weren't allowed to testify because of a language barrier. So they tried to get an interpreter or translator. But then there was a problem with her sister where they were going to let her sister testify. And... Then they realized like her English was better than they thought, but they had talked about some things that a witness shouldn't know in front of her because they didn't think her English was that good. So now they're like, well, we're just not gonna let her testify. So how is that fair? Yeah. <laughs> it was majorly, majorly effed up this whole thing. Basically, they're saying that Michelle's not here and apparently very few people on her side were allowed to testify. Her family wasn't. And now... He's standing up here, and he didn't actually testify, but his attorney's standing up here, just assassinating her character after brutally murdering her. It bothers me, too, because I'm sure that their kids are going to grow up and want to read the court transcripts or want to know what happened, and to decide to go that route, to make it out to seem like she was this horrible, promiscuous person, and he was just driven to madness out of love and care and concern is wild. Yeah, it's sad for him. The judge offered the jury what he called a panorama of charges that they could consider. They could find Jonathan guilty of first-degree murder. They could find him guilty of tampering with evidence, but also on lesser charges, lesser than murder, that is, of either aggravated manslaughter, reckless manslaughter, or passion provocation manslaughter. Yep, okay. According to the book Never Leave Me, Judge Bill Mathesius informed the jury that marital infidelity is one example of a reasonable provocation that could drive someone to kill in the heat of passion. But in order for jurors to find the defendant guilty of this least serious charge, the state had to prove adequate provocation to have impassioned the defendant and that he had not had reasonable time to cool off and calm down before killing Michelle. While the jury was out, Jonathan's parents spoke to the media defending their son And while doing so, Jonathan's dad shared a bizarre story about Jonathan. And this was about, he was trying to tell stories about his son and how great he was and how he's this amazing scientific mind and that he'd always been interested in science. And so this is verbatim what he said. He did a lot of experiments, Jonathan Jr. said wistfully. One day I came home and smelt something awful. He had a raccoon in a pot on the stove in Clorox and was cooking it because he wanted to see its skeleton. Okay, I can't because when you first started talking about him when he was into science when he was little, I literally almost said, what did he like, cut up some animals and shit? Well, I almost told you guys at that point, but I was like, you know, I think it's more impactful when we get to the fact that the jury is out at a murder trial and his dad thinks it's an appropriate time to talk about how 
he would bring home dead animals and melt their bones in Clorox. Or melt their bodies, rather. But you get it. His attorney at that point was like, okay, we're done here. We're done talking now. Thank you. She really did. She was like, okay, and we're done. This is great. Let's walk wow. away from wow. the dissecting a raccoon on the stove conversation. So the jury ended up deliberating for 14 hours spread over three days. So on first degree murder, what do you think they found? Hopefully guilty. Not guilty. Okay. Aggravated manslaughter. Hopefully guilty. Not guilty. Reckless manslaughter. Hopefully guilty. Not guilty. And then passion provocation manslaughter. The least of all the charges was guilty. He was also found guilty of tampering with physical evidence. Unbelievably, Jonathan was sentenced to only eight years in prison total for that brutal homicide. And he only ended up doing five. He was released in 2010. The jury believed that he killed her, but that he was driven mad and that all of the evidence about how poorly he covered it up just kind of spoke to that, that this wasn't premeditated because it was so poorly planned out for somebody who was smart. It makes sense that it wasn't premeditated. Yeah. It really does because of how horrible he was at cleaning it up. And based on the letter of the law and think about that judge's instruction, I mean, I wish that the punishment was longer, but it sounded like what that was. But I mean, it still was straight up murder. I know. And also, is he smart enough to know that if he does a bad job of hiding stuff that he'll get away with less? I think he was because when he did confess, he said something like, wow, that was stupid, huh? Like, I can't believe I was so stupid to do that. There's more to this, too. We're going to get into in a second. So while in prison, Jonathan did an interview with Paula Zahn for her ID show on the case with Paula Zahn. And this time he had a totally different story. This time around, he said that Alex Castaneda, as he knew Enyo, was stalking Michelle and that her injuries were actually from Alex, a.k.a. Enyo, throwing her over the balcony at their hump dump, the Mounts Motel. Throwing her over the balcony. He said that her head injuries were from him throwing her over the balcony and her landing on her head. Got a little too much time in jail to make stuff up. That's exactly what her forensic psychologist said, Andy. That's exactly what he said, who's on the show. So he said that then Enyo tried to set up his murder of her the same way that they said that Jonathan set up his murder of her, that he was the one. And he said, my proof is that the footprints leading away from the car were not my size. Enyo was a much smaller man. He had smaller shoes. He wore a totally different shoe size. But here's the thing. They found evidence in the house. They have found all of this like ripped up shoe soles. And it appeared that he had, and this is why I'm going to your point that he was smart enough to know that maybe he could make it look bad and get off on this provocation is because they found he had basically bought a smaller size because he knew what size this gardener was because obviously he was around their house and there's footprints and everything. And he had taken the sole off. They had this like piece of machinery in their basement that he could cut, slice the sole off and he had glued it to his own shoe. And then he had walked away from That's the crime scene. Yeah, with these shoes on. 
And then, but they just found the cut up pieces of the smaller soul. So then he had peeled it off his own soul and cut up the pieces. So I don't know if this really came up because they didn't want to bring in, I guess, the evidence that like he could argue that that's not what he did. They were like, well, we have the cut up pieces of the smaller soul. So that's what we think happened. So he said on this show that like the, the footsteps weren't the same. I didn't do this at all. And Paula Zahn, which, by the way, she was a total badass. She's like, uh, excuse me. We have your recorded confession where you say it was an accident. I did this. Then this is how I covered it up. And she plays some of it because he's like, that wasn't me. And she's like, OK, let's play it. <laughs> she's like, this isn't your voice. And he's like, well, that's my voice, but, you know, they can do anything through technology now. Essentially saying that the police had, like, scrambled it or recut it or deep faked it to sound like he's saying these things that he didn't. And she's like, in court, you said it was an accident. At one point, he says it was an accident. And and he's like, I don't remember saying that. Palazad is just like, dude, you clearly did it. We know you did it. Just admit it. Let's talk about why. Because he was still in prison at the time that she did this interview. And also she's like, well, okay, why did you let your attorney lie? If you were truly innocent, you should have told your attorney that you were truly innocent. Not, yes, he did it, but he was provoked. And then he made a terrible mistake in covering it up. And he's like, well, she lied because she said no one was going to believe my story and that this was the best play that we had to do. So I didn't want her to. She's not my attorney anymore because she's a liar. And I'm like, dude, you should be kissing that attorney's ass. because no of shit. No shit. Yeah, you should have been LWOPed. And here you are getting out of jail in five years. So Paul Zahn brought on a forensic psychologist who said, essentially, I'm summing up here, that some people, when they have time to stew in prison, like you said, Andy, it can almost break their brain to really come to terms with what they've done. So they create a story. And they decide to stick with that story and believe it, no matter how delusional or absurd it is, because they need to tell themselves and their family that story. Well, he stuck to this story, at least he has for the last few years. He published a memoir called Under the Color of the Law in 2012, which was a book about his wrongful conviction the self-published book did not garner great reviews. It received only a two out of five on Amazon and is now discontinued. The reviews are titled things like load of BS, a load of baloney, waste of money, pure silliness and disgusting. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Clearly, he did not make enough money on his shitty book because as we are speaking right now, at the end of 2022, Dr. Nice is once again in trouble with the law. And now, this time, it is not anything as horrific as murder. It's still pretty bad, guys. It is pretty, pretty bad. Jonathan, now 71 years old, is facing charges that he scammed money off of the owners of dying dogs, saying that he had medications that could cure their cancer. Oh. My God. He was selling fake dog cancer drugs. That's disgusting. That is reprehensible to prey upon people who love and cherish their pets to scam them out of, they believe, hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's 
horrible. Do you know what's really sad too? One of the only positive reviews he had on his book was somebody who was the owner of one of the dogs in one of his so-called clinical trials that was like, I love him. He's amazing. He's done so much for our family. I read his book and I believe him completely. Yeah, that was from 2016, I think, that review. I was like, oh, no. So they said that essentially he told everyone that these drugs were FDA approved. There were some pet owners that paid five grand to get their dogs in clinical trials, which he pocketed and didn't do anything with. And they said that they found that he was mixing some bulk ingredients in these medications and giving them to people for a very hefty price tag. That's horrifying. Horrible. Jonathan has been charged with wire fraud and selling misbranded drugs. And if convicted, which it looks like there's some sort of criminal proceeding coming up, hopefully at the end of this year, said something was going on like December 27th, I think, or maybe might get pushed to next year. But if convicted, he could face up to 32 years in jail. Wow, it's so crazy hearing that versus what he got for murdering his wife. Which, yeah, it's kind of screwed up about the laws that you could, based on being provoked, get much, much less time. Yeah, but obviously he premeditated if he shaved down his shoe size. I think so, too. I just don't think they could prove it. Yeah. But yeah, so, I mean, it's sad that he was out for the last 12 years and able to victimize more people this way. But it looks likely that he's going to at least get a goodly amount coming at him soon. I doubt he'll get the full 32. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's 71 now. He might, though, because he's already been in jail for a murder charge. He might. Now he's not the good doctor. He's he's doctor not nice. But yeah, we will definitely keep you guys posted as I find out more details about what's going on with that. But isn't that crazy? Yeah. Poor Michelle. I do not know the relationship that her family has with the children anymore. I know they're a lot older at this point, but it's a very hard situation. They tried to file for custody, but I can understand why a court would not send them to live with relatives that are in a foreign country they've never been to. That's very traumatizing. They don't speak the language. They haven't spent time other than their grandfather with these relatives. So even though it's dramatically unfair, it's also I don't I don't know what the alternative is if they are comfortable with their grandparents and their aunt and uncle on their father's side. Because at the end of the day, you have to look at what's best for the children. One hundred percent. It's a mess. So whew, this was a bizarre, chilly story. We got to tell you guys, as usual, if you're experiencing anything like any of the red flags we talked about in this episode then we very strongly suggest you get a hold of the domestic abuse hotline in any way you can. In conclusion, love yourself just as you are. Trust yourself. Know that you're great and that anyone would be lucky to get you. And know your worth so that you don't feel like you have to lie or catfish because everyone deserves somebody who loves them for who they truly are. And no one deserves to be deceived. And you can't truly trick anyone into loving you. Yeah, how about we don't start off a relationship by lying about our age? Especially someone who you're going to like plan to marry and be with and have kids with and live with. Forever. And age with. (laughs) Yeah, let's not do it. So let's just stop lying about that type of stuff, guys. 
Ah, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one is sold fake dog cancer drugs. Bye. Love you guys. <laughs> Stay warm out there. Bye.